Welcome to Success That Last, a podcast that seeks to have honest, candid conversations about the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we'll talk to a business owner, real estate investor, or industry consultant about their own experiences, observations, and insights as it pertains to that complicated topic of success. Today's conversation is with Alex Potts. Alex is the chairman of Buckingham Strategic Partners. Alex originally founded the business back when he was 31 years old, and over the next 20 years grew it to be an industry leader. Alex managed this growth as a father and husband. He understands intimately the challenges of competing priorities when a business and its team needs you as much as your wife and children might need you, and yet he managed these priorities effectively, all the while building and growing a great company in an incredible culture. During today's conversation with Alex, we're going to explore some of the leadership principles that has most positively impacted Alex in his rapidly growing organization. Moreover, we're going to talk about culture, this rather nebulous, tough to understand topic that has a huge implication and huge impact on your business's bottom line. And ultimately, we'll conclude our conversation with Alex discussing exit planning. As a successful business leader, Alex had grown an organization that over 50 other companies were interested in either merging into or acquiring. Alex will share what that experience was and some of the core pillars that informed his decision and how he was able to successfully exit the business while maintaining his leadership role and providing a continued opportunity for his current employees and current constituents. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into today's conversation with Alex Potts. Well, Alex Potts, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Jared. Totally appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. We find ourselves in unusual times. So here we are uh, from our new glamorous home offices. We may or may have not shaved today, but but we're getting it done. It's actually incredible. Like one of the things that's jumped out at me, I think about, and probably it's like this for you, where you basically take a solo office and all of a sudden you turn it into 30 or 50. In our case in San Jose and St. Louis, we have now 500 basically separate offices with all these people working from home and it works. I'm glad it's now and not 10 years ago. It is crazy to think about what it would have been like prior to all this technology having existed and literally our fluency with it would have been a lot different. So at least for us, it's fascinating how efficient we can still be despite being physically separated. It's going pretty well, all things considered. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you get to see me on video and me, you right now. So it actually makes it a little bit easier just to chat, a little more fun than just a plain old phone conversation. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, it'll be interesting when this is all done and we return back to whatever the new normal is, what parts of this experience we end up redeeming that stick because they were beneficial to our life and or our business. And, and we integrate into whatever the new normal looks like when we get back to the office. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you think about, I think this could be one of those events too, where 10 years from now or 15 years from now, we're going to say, you know, yeah, like I actually lived through that period where there was a pandemic, like first real pandemic in our lives. And we're having a, a chance to go through it and seeing kind of how markets respond and how people respond and all of that. But it, it is crazy how interconnected that we can all be. I mean, ironically, I was on a, 
a game night with a whole bunch of my family members last night. That would have been unheard of a month ago. And I mean, literally, we were on for two and a half hours just playing a multitude of games and kind of using computers, laughing, giving each other a hard time. It was just a blast. So it's incredible what we can do now to stay connected. We're making memories for sure. So as we kind of jump into our conversation today, you're the chairman of Buckingham Strategic Partners, and uh, you've had an incredibly uh, accomplished career, but chances are it wasn't a linear ascent. And so, you know, today you're a father, husband, business leader, and obviously a chairman as well. But as I was doing some homework on our conversation today, there was a story that jumped out at me that as a 13-year-old, you were helping your mother reconcile her checkbook and kind of got the bug in you, so to speak, of leaning into and helping people with their finances. So I, I just kind of wanted to give you a few minutes to kind of share your story of what were some of the career events and life events that led you to the chair that you sit in today? Yeah. So it's actually interesting you bring that one up. So, you know, as a kid, so my brother and I grew up and my mom was a uh, single parent. So she divorced my dad when I was 11 years old when she ended up divorcing him. And she was an elementary school teacher. And as you can imagine, as an elementary school teacher, he didn't have a whole lot of money. My dad had actually been out of work and kind of had a whole series of issues. He's He has long since passed away now. So my brother and I, we're both latchkey kids. And we got a really early respect for money and what it could do or not do for a family. So the checkbook story was interesting. I literally remember, I mean, to this day, it's one of those kind of seminal moments for me. It all started, actually, I used to blow through the Converse Chuck Taylor shoes. Many of you might remember they had like the really soft rubber soles and that. But as a maybe an ADD, hyperactive young kid, I went through those shoes about every two weeks. And I really wanted to get a pair of Adidas. And they, again, I can't say I'm really a shoe guy, but for whatever reason, there was this pair of Adidas that I just loved. Maybe I could play kickball better or skateboard better or something. And I remember asking my mom and she said, well, one, you're going to have to pay for half of it. And she said, the other thing is I want you to balance my checkbook. And I kind of had an idea. This was something that she did on a pretty regular basis. And so I sat down and realized like there was really no other money to spend on kind of a luxury item. And um, (laughs) that was pretty humbling, right? When you're, and again, at that age of 13, you know well enough that you know, kind of what's right, what's wrong. And that. so she basically said, hey, I'll pay the same price that I would have paid for those Converse Chuck Taylors, but you're going to have to pay the other half. So, I mean, I literally, I mowed lawns, washed windows, did whatever I could and got those Adidas tobaccos. And they ended up lasting me about five weeks, five or six weeks, which is about a little over twice as long as the Chuck Taylors for about twice the price. So I think I got value out of them. But I think the whole lesson, I mean, when you grow up with not a whole lot, and actually my brother and I did grow up with a whole lot of love in the family and, and some tough love too with my mom. Yeah, you get a different appreciation for money. And ironically, to carry the story even a little further, my elementary school principal kind of took me under his wing. So if you think of this 13-year-old kid, so I was sixth grade, 7th grade actually, and He ended up, we stayed in touch and he became a financial planner and he worked for this little company, RWB. And he was a commission-based financial planner. So 
a retired elementary school principal and, and I was kind of interested in helping people with their money. And he said, Hey, would you want to intern with me? So I did that in 1987. Little did I know that this would be kind of an offshoot of the company that it is today that I've lost all my hair with. So <laughs> you're just more aerodynamic. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. As an avid runner, it probably shaves a few minutes off your times, right? <laughs> I'd like to think so. I'm still slow though, Jared. I'm still slow. <laughs> so you mentioned something there that I thought was interesting. So this seminal moment with your mother reconciling her checkbook, maybe realizing how tight things really were for the first time. Presumably that wasn't necessarily the same situation that, that your own two children grew up in. And I'm curious as you, th with that experience and being in the industry of wealth management, investment advisory services, were there any core principles that you worked hard to instill in your own children, kind of the culmination of those childhood experiences, as well as being around financial decisions from a professional perspective? Yeah, you know, so it is interesting. So I think relatively speaking, I'll say this loosely. I mean, the kids grew up in a fairly functional family, right? Like both Karen and I, we still get on well. We've been married 30 years in October. But even at the time, you know, when the kids were born, so 93 and 95, wasn't like Karen and I were rolling in money. Now, the one thing we did is we, I mean, we both were working our tails off. She was working at Costco and I was working for this little startup. I'll tell you, this little startup, which became the company was today. I mean, we were hustling, right? And there was, there was a period of time at the very beginning. I wasn't even sure if my paycheck would clear because the founders were actually, you know, basically taking money out of their second mortgages to help fund the business and to get it up and running. And I was basically employee number one. So the kids, I mean, heck, we, the kids grew up in a, an 1100 square foot house, actually it was a 1086 square foot home, three bedrooms, two baths and one living room. So we were all like right on top of each other. And, and actually I liked it in kind of a cool way. And I think one thing both Karen and I did so we both grew up with very little money. So neither one of us came from real means per se. And I think for the kids, they saw us working our tails off to kind of provide. And I think that was important for them to understand it. Like I would bring them into work and Karen would bring them into her work and they could see how, you know, mom and dad were kind of making ends meet. And I think that helped them. I mean, I'll knock on wood. I think they're both kind of, they're both super frugal and, um, and yeah, we do have things differently today than, than we did when, when I was a kid, but they're, uh, they're both actually very altruistic and that I think, I think, I mean, again, I'll give mom a lot of the credit. We're both pretty altruistic, but she's done an amazing job kind of helping instill those values. And I think I, I try to draft in behind them and do the same. I guess to get a little more tangible from a tactics perspective, were there any specific actions or moments that you you took to instill those values? I mean, it's one thing to talk about the values, but to actually make sure that they stick. Anything from a tactics standpoint that you feel like would be wise counsel for people with younger kids or grandkids? Absolutely. I think I think the younger they are, the sooner, the earlier, or the younger they are, the more important it is to quickly let them know if they want something or if they desire something that they need to earn it. And working, whether and for my kids, it, I mean, I think of mowing the lawn for the kids, the chores that they did, 
we did do an allowance. I know at the time, Karen and I actually researched like kind of maybe it's the geek in me or the behavioral finance person in me, but to understand does an allowance actually help a child in that? And if they work for it and earn it above and beyond kind of their day-to-day chores of making their bed, et cetera, then they should be able to utilize that money however they see fit. If they desire something, a fancy bike or a fancy pair of shoes, I ended up doing the same thing my mom did, is that if they saw something above and beyond what was quote-unquote normal, as I would say, hey, you pay for half and we'll pay for half. And even to this day, um, as both of them go along, like uh, there was a fitness membership that my daughter was doing. Actually, it was a, a martial arts and fitness membership. And I said, hey, if, if you sign up for that, I'll pay for half and you pay for the other half. She goes, all right, dad, it's a deal. And um, she was 24 and did that for a year and a half. And so not compromising on that was important, but she earned it, right? And maybe it would have been a little more of a stretch if she tried to pay for it all herself, but they totally get it. So I would definitely start young and make sure the kids are, are earning what they get. Don't just give it to them. Wise counsel. Yeah. Time will tell whether or not these lessons stick, but I'll often talk to my own kids about money buys you things, experiences, and impact. And therefore, you know, there's three purposes to your money. You'll spend some, give some, and save some. And so often when they do come into some money, it's allocating budgets for those things. You know, how much are you going to save? How much are you going to spend? And how much are you going to give? Yeah, that's an awesome way to think about it, right? Because, yeah, you know, we're talking about that in terms of tangible stuff. You know, it's interesting, though, one thing as a parent that I've compromised on. So we just did a big family trip. So my son will be 25. My daughter will be 27. And something that always like one of our family values was having experiences together. So we traveled together a lot and we would do road trips. We would do we went to New Zealand for three weeks back in 2005. We've done all kinds of trips. And so just last February, before all of this coronavirus stuff really hit the States, we took a two and a half week trip that I told the kids, I said, hey, I'm paying for this if you come. And so they basically both got time off of their work and they came on this trip and it was worth every penny. I mean, as, as a parent, it was something that my mom or my dad really couldn't do. They didn't have that luxury of time per se. And so to be able to do that for the kids, that's the one thing that I think we'll keep doing. And candidly, I'll say for, I'd rather have that than stuff. So, but I love the way that you framed it. The idea of giving the money away is awesome. Well, yeah. And at the end of the day, that's really, it's forced distribution. You get three categories, but it is really, it falls into things, experiences, and impact. And once you have enough things, the opportunity to invest in experiences and impact, I think, is infinitely rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So you said something there that I thought was interesting that that your family values experiences and I and I love that and I'm actually offline we'll have to talk about New Zealand cuz that's a dream trip. But I mentioned I I was reading your book this weekend, The Wealth Solution, bringing structure to your financial life and you were talking about the process that you've observed that brings the most benefit to an end client, you know, of their wealth planning journey and talked about the need to really get clarity around vision and values. And so I agree, but I kind of wanted to unpack that a little bit. From your experience firsthand and secondhand, why is that a great place to start any sort of a planning conversation as it pertains to one's finances? So so one, it would be hard to plan without it. And why I say that is if you don't know what matters, 
you won't really know kind of where your values lie. So understanding what matters to you makes the planning a, a lot easier to get to. So say if I just, if, if what mattered to me was to get a bunch of stuff, you as a planner could step back and say, okay, how are we going to get you stuff? And maybe you can even help me rethink that. Or if I said, Hey, I want to get all experiences. You could, you could help me think about that and help me plan for what the budget is, right? It's, It'd be like running a sports team and saying, hey, what matters to you? Well, if, if making money matters to you, but winning doesn't, probably going to have a moderately profitable team and a whole bunch of losses. So I think you throw that stake in the ground and um, and what matters will help you determine your values. And for us, doing things together as a family and having experience matters. And so for, ironically, for my financial advisor, he knows that and he basically is helping keep me set up where I don't have to worry about a lot of things that will distract me, distract me from taking care of what, what matters to me. And that's spending time with the family and, and having those trips. Perfect. Well, so I'm going to take a purposeful pause because this conversation just took off. It's been flying, but for our listeners at home, they might not necessarily be familiar with Buckingham. So I'm a partner at the lap and I lead our wealth advisory practice. And as we were growing so quickly, we need to create more capacity, more resources for planning opportunities in service of our of our current clients. And so in that need that we had organizationally to create more capacity to meet the demand, we reached out to you. We found you as somebody that could support us behind the scenes, creating resources and scale that we wouldn't otherwise have and buying power to benefit our clients. It's been a wonderful behind the scenes partnership but a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know who Buckingham is. So I guess at a high level, roughly 50 billion of assets and 450-ish employees. And as the chairman of Buckingham Strategic Partners, I guess kind of big picture, Can you? did I hit it a little bit? What is Buckingham? And then we can jump into kind of what you're doing uh, strategically within that organization from a leadership standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So, and you did hit it. And if I take it back to how it all got started, it was. It started with those with basically the three financial planners back in 1990, and what they wanted to do was to spend more time in front of their clients and solving the more complex issues for their clients, and spend less time dealing with the, the paperwork, the transfers, the distributions, the trading platforms. They all had kind of a common ideology of how they could help discover what their clients situations were basically to do a diagnosis and they had a kind of a common methodology of how to treat the clients but they didn't want to deal with all the minutiae behind it so that's how our business got started i mean literally i was a 22 year old kid coming out of santa clara university and my job was to support these three advisors and there was a there was a little upstart company called charles schwab which had this little institutional business that was basically at $100 million at that time. Now they're, I think, over $2 trillion serving financial advisors. And my job was to figure out how do I take the work off the desk of the advisors so they could spend more time solving these more complex issues for their clients. And then we started hiring people and bringing them in to help us. And we looked for people with that passion, people who were humble, caring, they were smart, they had a can-do attitude. And um, we just kept looking to try to find those people. And we didn't have it as defined as what I just said it. It was kind of like, we just were looking for nice people who are adaptively smart that like to help other people. And um, 
in our industry, there was no, there was no business or there were very few businesses that were really like us. Um, and we, we kind of thrived off the idea that the advisors could provide super objective information that they could hire and fire their clients at any time. The clients could hire and fire them. The advisors could hire and fire us at any time. And so we all had to provide great service or, or we were out. And, um, so if, yeah, if you push fast forward, I, there's sometimes I can't believe that we're at whatever at, you know, the 50 billion in total, um, for the whole company. I mean, our, our, our current TAMP business is at about 35 billion or maybe a little less than that now after the coronavirus stuff, but it's, it's sizable and we, we get to serve a lot of lives. We're close to 200,000 lives that we serve. And I, sometimes I shake my head, like, I can't believe it got so big and we just kind of, the need was out there, and I think, I think the I think the more complex people's financial situations are, the more demand on the financial advisor. So, if we can keep taking work off the plate, off of your plate, that makes it easier for you to spend more quality time with your clients, and we're doing something right. So like that's kind of fun. I feel lucky. I need to knock on wood when I when I say all this stuff. Absolutely. No, it's been a wonderful partnership and it's allowed us the time and resources necessary to help clients make more predictable, profitable financial decisions. And we're grateful for it. So if I back up then, what struck me is you referenced a financial advisor. So you're the chairman of of Buckingham Strategic Partners and you've been around the industry for 30, 40 years now and, and you have a financial advisor. So I think that's Interesting. So, and it's probably not not a coincidence or an accident that it occurred. So, you're licensed, right? Your Series Seven, sixty five, sixty three, twenty four. You've got all the licensing, a bunch of numbers after your name, but but nonetheless, you find value in advisor. And so, I'm just kind of curious, why is that? You know? Yeah. You know what? I think so. Kind of back to the values. So for me, spending more time with Karen and our kids. And, and maybe having that quality time. Also, having somebody who is, is worried as much for my financials as I am and thinking about that and helping me think about things that I maybe ordinarily wouldn't was super valuable to me. So one, it saves me time. So I don't have to stress over it. Two, the advisor like you is so passionate about figuring things out and the depth and knowledge and understanding that they have just saves me a lot of time from digging into my own. And I, I've always liked the investment side. I mean, we've done the trading or helped advisors with their trading for years and years. But having that discipline, having an outsider in there keeps me from making cognitive errors like every other human being out there, right? When, when things go down, um, whatever, 38% in two weeks, you kind of think like, well, okay, like, you know, it's good to have reassurance. Pick up the phone and I speak to my advisor, Mike, and I kind of float ideas by him and we think about it. And I'm lucky that, you know, again, like you and your clients, you're diversified, but it still stings, right? Again, we weren't down 38% like the whole market because we were diversified, but you're still down a lot. And what are the impacts to your future? So it's it's nice to have somebody else bear that burden, I guess, and take that stress off me. Hopefully it helps me live a few years longer. And and I, I yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful for what you all do as advisors and the passion and the depth of understanding that you take and just figuring things out for your clients. It's really an amazing um, it's an amazing business that you do, but it's it's actually an amazing service. And yeah, I'm super grateful for it. So as I was, uh, again, preparing for our time together, you were a young CEO. 
became founder and CEO of the company that is eventually became what it is today at the age of 31. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's so right. I, uh, I started losing hair at that age, I think. Yeah. I think I've grown a lot of forehead <laughs> through this uh, coronavirus experience. I guess, you know, that was roughly 20-ish years ago. So I'm curious, what are some of the insights that you have uh, observed, realized, experienced along that 20-year journey of leading an organization from startup to, you know, again, the, the whole organization today is 50 billion-ish and your sleeve is roughly 35 billion-ish with a B. I mean, those are big numbers and there's a lot of families and a lot of employees and Presumably, I, I like to talk about tuition, real world tuition, kind of the mistakes that, that we all make. And so uh, I guess what are what were some of the formative experiences that you've had along the last 20 ish years in leadership? And, and what are some of the pillars that you that you cling to today in these moments of stress and uncertainty? So I think the first one as a when I was 31 and not necessarily a kid. Right. I think at that time I was I started thinking about it a little bit later. So at 31 you know, you start thinking about like Bill Gates at 34 running Microsoft and all that. So in the whole scheme of things, yeah, I was young, but it wasn't like I was running Microsoft. But the one thing, the one thing that does get in the way is you think about, you think about your role and what you should be doing as a CEO. And what I thought I should be doing was still very tactical in nature. And I'm more of a big picture guy that I would rather not dive into the minutiae. I like thinking, thinking about things at 50,000 feet and being creative that way. But I would find myself as a new CEO getting into things and maybe trying to control situations that I probably shouldn't have been doing. And really, if you think about the role of a CEO, and this didn't come to me till probably 10 years later, you are the voice for the company. You are the cultural frequency holder. You can't delegate that to anybody else. Like that is your own. And when something goes wrong, ultimately it's on you. You don't blame it on your team or others. You are the one responsible for it. And so learning how to actually develop culture and, and, um, I spent, I spent a lot of time doing a lot of reading and kind of a geek on, leadership and how effective leaders lead. And so just, I think at 31, I was so busy working on the job. And now here I am, you know, I'll be 53 in June. And I'm thinking, you know, like I'm finally starting to learn what it is to be a leader. And, and if I can help other lives, like that to me is what a, a good leader should be doing. And it's something I have passion for but I still call myself a neophyte. I still read about it a lot. And um, that, I love it. It's really an honor. And it's hard work at the same time. But if you like helping people and, and you can get out of your own way, I think anybody who's kind of has those, those attributes can be a good leader if they just hunker down and stick with those and help facilitate good to happen. So we always are working to add resources to our clients and our friends here through this podcast. So I guess. As somebody who's read a lot on the subject, studied the subject of leadership and culture, two very challenging, rather nebulous topics, I guess, is, are there specific books or content pieces that have been most valuable or, or jump out in your mind as, you know, if you could only refer two or three books or resources on the topic that these would be the go-to? Yeah, absolutely. So one book that I love is uh, Pat Lencioni's book, The Advantage, and I would highly recommend that. Anybody that's running a company or that's in the middle of a company, um, it is a phenomenal book. And 
it basically kind of gives you a roadmap on how to think about your own values and whether you like it or not as a leader of a company and, and as a participant in a company, um, you're, you're creating or you're propagating culture and that culture can be good or bad, but knowing what that is, first and foremost, I, I would say this book will help be that compass to help you find that. And it's called The Advantage by Pat Lencioni. The other one was a class that I took, um, and it was a four day offsite in the middle of nowhere, Utah. And if someone from Utah is listening, it's Torrey, Utah. It's by Capitol Reef State Park. And the gentleman who taught it was a guy named Randall Stutman, and he runs a company called CRA, which is, which is an acronym for Capital Reef Advisors. And he's done leadership work all, I mean, for Fortune 100 companies. And the one thing he did is he distilled leadership down into behaviors. And when you meet a leader who has incredible followership and gets incredible results, um, they're just different. And I, uh, I'm lucky to live in the Bay Area. I'm a big Golden State Warrior fan. And we have, I believe, one of those leaders that lives here, and a guy named Steve Kerr, who is known. I mean, he's very authentic. He's the same guy at home as he is at work, it seems. And um, he's he's very disciplined, but he has his um, his values and they're they're easily laid out. And so maybe as an observer to it, you can see around that you can see around you whether it's businesses that are run really well or those that aren't run really well, if you think about it, they're all kind of a reflection of the leader in the business. So I think a lot of the learnings from there, but Randall actually doesn't have a book, although he's coming out with an online curriculum about behaviors that admired leaders do. And if you think of an admired leader, again, it's they get great followership and they get great results. And it's rare to find those people. You might find some who get incredible results, but they're just kind of jerks to work for. And you have others who are just really nice people, but they don't get the results. So finding both and what they do tangibly day in and day out is is just fascinating. So are leaders born or developed? Oh, uh, I think leaders are mainly developed. I think if, if somebody is an extreme introvert and can't make eye contact and doesn't like people, they probably shouldn't be in a leadership position. But I think if 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 somebody enjoys people and is willing to kind of sacrifice themselves for the benefit of others, they could be a great leader. And I think learning the skills of that are are skills. Just like if you want to be a, a good golfer or or uh, or knitter or whatever, that you can learn those skills. You might not be the best at them, but um, I think you can. I think you can learn the skills of leadership and. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think it's it's something that can be learned and it's primarily learned. Perfect. So I've got one last kind of question on uh, on culture. Huge uh, Patrick Lencioni fan, been huge uh, consumer of his content for quite a while. And actually, our, our firm's partner retreat this year was facilitated by the table group. So uh, big believers in, oh, cool. in what they're about Yeah, awesome. and the, the importance of organizational health. And so as you kind of think about organizational health, one reflection of a healthy culture or a healthy organization would be a healthy culture. And and so as you've scaled this business rather quickly over the last kind of 22, 23 years and scaled through this recent merger, you know, the, the, the team that you're leading has continued to grow and expand rapidly. And so I guess in the midst of rapid expansion and, and under today's current moment, uh, economic shock and Kind of un, unusual times, you know. You just referenced 500 remote offices. How have you managed culture? Any insights there? I think would be interesting because 
presumably each new hire is a small pebble in the pond, so to speak, a ripple effect that that's going to either enhance the culture or dilute it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first and foremost is defining what you want. So ours, very simply, we were looking for people that were humble, caring, and they were they had smart do. So they were smart with the can-do attitude. So those attributes follow us through all of our hiring. If they become, if those attributes become incongruent, say someone's putting their interests above other people, that that humility box gets checked off, um, or that lack of humility box gets checked. They probably find themselves getting filtered out of the company. So being really clear on hiring, firing, and any decision you make, does it add to the culture or does it take away? But you have to know what that it is, and that was ours. So when we brought the business together, we stepped back with the aggregate leadership group, and we came up with our own now new language. And it, and it was really interesting because it when you step through it, this idea of like the passion to progress, the passion to serve others, and the passion to do right, like those three things make up what we do. But if we were to put them through a filter, does it help us help our clients more? Does it give us more capabilities? And um, does it help you help your clients more? And can we help more people? Like those are the filters that we're running it through. And I think first and foremost, for anybody listening, saying, hey, you, you know, how do I build culture? One, you've already done it because as a leader, it's going to happen whether you like it or not. But are you doing it in the way that you want to have it done? So I would define that. So I'd go to the advantage and I would learn, like, if you answer those key questions in the advantage, you're probably going to be pretty darn close and figure out what that anchor is. If you think about how do you amalgamate these two things? So if I, if I think about what are the leadership learnings, um, a trait of admired leaders is they're present in times of crisis. And if you think of any leader that, that I guess is worth their salt, when things are really wrong, they show up. They're there and they're, they're basically on call. They're ready to rip. And that, that is one behavior that is a foundational one. And so at this time for our team, we actually, I was, I was reading through the data. One pickup time. So we were able to kind of once, COVID hit, or once the the quarantine hit, and I guess the the sequester in place or the stay in place happened, we had all the offices remote. We basically said, "Hey, we're going to contact all of the advisors." So we we captured. We still wanted the same call pickup time. So as an advisor, if you needed to get a hold of somebody, you would have that access. Our volumes increased three to four times, but we were able to do it and hold the line. But I think it started with kind of holding that line on the values humble caring smart and can do like how are we going to figure this out as a team it's not me kind of coming down and saying oh you have to do this it's the team figuring it out on their own and me trying to get them whatever resources i can muster to help them do that better and whatever our management team can do to help everybody in there so um in some ways this this time when things are the when things feel the worst is the time that cultures show up for good and bad. I am so happy with the way that things have turned out. We're not perfect, but the team is progressing. They're trying to get better and better and better just to see can we do this as well or better than what we did when we were all in the office. So if somebody doesn't fit with that, what happens? Jared, the culture's kicking them out. And the culture means the teams or the manager, it doesn't have to filter up. It, it becomes self-propagating or self-fulfilling. I guess that's when you know you have a really strong culture. You know, it's hot or cold. You fit or you don't fit. Might not have much culture if, if everyone fits. Absolutely. 
And that's actually the important part, right? Like not everybody will fit as, as accurate as we like to think we are on how our values hold to all of the, the teammates. Not everybody has a bit of equal weighting. And so what are the ones that really matter to you, right? Like if, if somebody keeps putting their interests above the teams, they're not going to last very long in our company. And that one matters to me when self-interest dominates team interest. And, and so people tend not to find themselves here for that long. But there are other things that, that, that people might hang around longer that, that are outside the humility, right? Like if, I don't know, there are some things that you'll give more forgiveness for, but there are some foundational ones that you just can't, you can't lose sight of. And once the team picks it up, and again, you being a team player of all people, right? The University of Oregon had an unbelievable culture and an unbelievable winning environment. And that uh, that's not done by accident. Like that is something that's well designed and well thought through. And then everybody brings to the table that, of course, they had a great kicker too. So, Of course, in the olden days when they let those guys kick Googles once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Fun memories. All right. I guess kind of as we kind of put a bow on our conversation today, one of the common conversations that we have with our clients is, is our conversations around succession and estate and exit planning. And uh, I think you've navigated that well in your own life. And so you just went through a, a sizable, we'll call it just exit planning. You know, two organizations came together and I, you know, somebody who's a, a constituent of that organization, I think you guys have done it really well. And so I guess from that perspective of having looked at all kinds of different options, my understanding is, is you, you were approached over 50 times in a year and a half prior to making the decision that you did. So I guess kind of that a big picture, if you're sitting down with a bunch of business owners that are considering their options, that they know that their business likely isn't transitioning within their family, how to think about that decision or that moment of, of how do you exit your business well and do it in a way that honors the business and the people that helped build it with you, but moreover protects your family and helps set you up for whatever's next in the season of life that you're walking into. So it was interesting, the same process we went through our business, we actually did this for the possibility of selling the company. So over a couple of years, yeah, we did get a lot of bids for the company. And actually with, uh, with the Buckingham team, it wasn't the highest bid and it was focused financial who came in to help do the deal. But I had known the CEO for quite a while. I had known the culture for quite a while. And we could line it up, this humble, caring, smart dude that I keep bringing up that we looked at our company. We were saying, hey, if we're going to sell, we need to have these same traits because, like, again, I'm, I'm pretty young. Like, I love what I'm doing and I like helping other people. We can help more lives. I, I did not want to work for just a firm that was going to profit, maximize, and burn people out. And, and I was lucky enough and I and the team, we were lucky enough that we had a shareholder group that, who, I mean, their directive was do what's best for the business. Don't just do it for the money. And we stepped away from a couple of deals that were offering pretty significantly more, mainly to have the values set up right. And um, I would say for anybody selling, it's a binary choice. Either you can sell it, either you're going to sell it and you're going to get out and you just profit maximize, take all your money and run, or you're going to sell it and you're going to be around for a while. Are you going to have purpose? And is it going to align with your values? So I would throw that stake in the ground and figure out what matters to you with the values. And, um, 
it, do you like working with nice people or not nice people? Do you like working, you know, do you want humility or no humility? Do you want efficiency or no efficiency? Do you want accountability or no accountability? Like weigh those out and make sure it's a good fit. And um, so I, I would say a binary, take the money or make sure the values are right. But, um, and sometimes you can get both. And so I think of ours, it's super purposeful now for us. We have, you know, my, my objective is how do we help a million lives? And, Again, we're at about 200,000 in aggregate, so we have a ways to go. And the buyout made it easier to get to a million lives. And um, and again, it's fun to try to get there. I just want to meaningfully help people in their, with their, you know, through their advisor and through their financials. And however we can do it, we're we're in. So anybody selling, it's a tough decision and it's tiring and exhausting. But if you land in the right place, it it feels good. Well, I think you've done it well. I might be putting more into what you just said than than what you actually said, but it sounded to me like you had a process. It sounded to me like you were intentional and proactive about it. So many of our clients, it's three to five years, three to five, I'll, I'll deal with this in three to five years. And then all of a sudden the unsolicited offer comes in and there isn't necessarily competition. It's it's just one offer from one person, but the, the, the number might be interesting. I guess, was it a process? Were you proactive in, in that approach and and what did that look like yeah so we were so at the very beginning we had unsolicited offers for our business and this had been happening for a couple of years and really in 2017 it really started to pick up through 2017 and 2018 our intent really wasn't to sell but we were open-minded enough to listen and we said you know we kind of got the idea if we were to sell who would we want to sell to and that created a much shorter list than just the the buyers that were approaching us. And we did work with an investment banker and we said, hey, here's here's what we're thinking about. And he said, you know what? He basically put us in front of that time. There were 23 people and these were 23 that we didn't speak to in the past. And um, we didn't end up going with any of those 23. There were two of those 23 that we knew pretty well fit the cultures. And, um, and so I think... Yeah, that process, you got to find out what you want first. And I think, again, if you're going to get out in three to five years and that's your plan, you can probably be a little less concerned with your values. Um, and I I need to be careful saying that because that can be a really, really miserable three to five years if you don't like the people that you're working with. Um, but I, I don't know. I think on ours, that process of, of you have to self-discover before you go out and do it. It's it was actually, ironically, it was pretty easy because we already had our values documented. And again, if you worked with the table group and you read and you read that book, The Advantage, it's pretty simple. Like, why do you exist? And, you know, why are you here? Why are you doing what you're doing? If you want to keep that going, you better find a buyer that aligns with that. If you don't, you're it's going to be miserable. One of the tenets that I remember from our time with the table group and reading all their, their literature is this concept of a rallying cry, of uh, team absolutely. focus here for the next 90 days. So if I if I was saying kind of what's the rallying cry here for second quarter or maybe just 2020 for for Buckingham and your team, and what are you guys most focused on this year? Actually, too, it's funny you say that because I'm I'm now on my high horse talking about the rallying cry. So one, it's helping more advisors. So we're trying to help number one take care of our existing advisors and help them grow and find more people to help, and the other is to find new advisors that that appreciate what we do. Um, 
this idea of being diversified wasn't that sexy when U.S. large companies are doing really well. So I think a lot of a lot of advisors who maybe don't have the same investment ideology didn't quite know we were out here. Now I think I think they're starting to better understand that. So th- these kind of down markets create unusual opportunities to be able to help a lot of lives. So again, the rallying cry is we're going to help you know, existing advisors and help them grow. And we're going to help new advisors and find and help new advisors. So that is the rallying cry. Love it. That's great. It's a worthy one. And I guess my last question then is just kind of stress management. These are weird times and the market's all over the place and people are trying to figure out what the implications are to this shelter in place as it pertains to their business and their supply chains. And it's anxious and it can be lonely at the top. And so Notice that you're a runner. I mean, is that in part for your mental health as much as it is your physical health? I mean, how did you discover your running habit and why do you continue to uh, to pursue it these days? <laughs> November of 1995 is when I started running. It was November 1st, 1995. I feel like Forrest Gump a little bit. So our son, David, was colicky. And, um, and so I needed some sort of a release. And so did Karen, for that matter. And so in the mornings at 6 a.m., I would get my sorry tail up. I would eat a little bit, have a drink of water and go out on a run. And I, I started doing that. In some ways, I've never stopped. So yesterday I got my miles and I have to do something. As you can probably tell, like I'm, I'm a little bit ADHD or hyperactive in that. So I've got to move. Blowing off that steam is, is good for my brain and I think good for my body. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I started. It is it is uh, what I find to be one of the greatest stress releases. And I I don't listen to music. Um, I just listen to my footsteps. Um, I get no voices on it, and that's nice to have no voices. It kind of calms me down. Yeah, it's interesting. I started running mostly so that I could fit into my pants, but then all of a sudden I started <laughs> to appreciate that it did clear your mind. You know, it, all of a sudden it freed your thoughts up, and whether it's the rhythm of just running or the nothingness of just being in your own thoughts. It's uh, It was interesting just to have breakthroughs intellectually that weren't occurring when you're sitting there staring at your screen or your, your inbox. Absolutely. You know, I think the one thing that people, I think is important for any leader or really anybody who's dealing with stress and that, that idea of making that time for yourself where you could just noodle on something, whether it's, it's an elliptical or a stationary bike or a road bike or whatever, where you can kind of get lost in that I mean, I've solved so many problems in my life by running and where you just get, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of just time to mull over a subject or not. You just let your brain go wherever it wants to go. It's very meditative. And um, I think that time is really important. I notice if I don't do it, I, I, I don't do so well. I get too fidgety and just hyperactive. So that, that to me is, has been super helpful. And I think it's, yeah, I see a lot of people, I mean, I can't do yoga well, or I shouldn't say I can't. I, I just don't do yoga well. And um, so the, uh, the idea of running is my meditation for that. But I, there are so many other ways to do it. And it's good. It clears your head. Yeah, I heard Michael Kitsis say that self-care in these moments isn't selfish. You know, self-care is not selfish. And so I think it's an important thing to stay stay healthy in the head as a business leader so that you can bring your best. You know, the idea of putting your oxygen mask on first, you can't give what you don't have. And so uh, making sure that you prioritize your physical and emotional health in these moments is is super important. But 
easy to get squeezed out when you're running short on time. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, I think that idea of just making time, again, that's kind of one of my things, actually. Karen's like, you know, she sees me starting to get pent up being home or whatever. Again, the shelter in place has kept a lot of us home. She's like, you need to go on a run. And so sometimes getting those reminders and uh, it's great. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. Awesome. Well, Alex, I just want to say thanks so much for our time today and the opportunity to hear about kind of your your vision and your opportunity to influence culture and just some of the insights that you picked up along the way. I hope that our listeners enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Oh, Jared, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me on. We'll have to do it again. Thanks so much, Alex. All right. Thanks again.